So I'll just say that Halkibaz is a very distinguished historian of Cuba, particularly on its military history, and <coughs> Professor Jean Savage is a very distinguished historian of the Caribbean and has worked extensively on Cuba in relation to such things as tobacco, for example, amongst many other things. So um, Hal is going to begin with uh, some comments. Jean will act as discussant, and then we'll open it up to Q&A. So please uh, welcome both speakers. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, am, I must say that I'm very nervous because there are a lot of people who know a lot about Cuba in this room and at this table. And um, the last time Jean had to listen to me, she savaged me quite properly afterwards. And so I'm hoping she's forgiven me and that it'll be a little less savage uh, this time. Um, I don't my, even remember. Oh, good. You see? <laughs> she's so accustomed to it. <laughs> um, I thought I'd say um, a few words about uh, what I think uh, Cuba looks like with Fidel's passing and also discuss what seems to have been the constant in everything one has done for so many years, the succession. The, dif the difference being, of course, that the succession isn't the issue that it used to be. It's a different kind of issue, but it's still there uh, very much in, in uh, people's minds. So I'll, I'm going to start uh, in reverse order from what I thought I would do when I, uh, when I uh, took on this, this uh, pleasant task, and uh, start with the mood today, as far as I know. I should say that I was in darkest Bangalore, which is not in Cuba, um, on the, on the uh, evening uh, that Fidel died, uh, and uh, couldn't get back uh, to the island. So I haven't actually been back, but I have been in constant telephone and, uh, and uh, email contact with everybody, feeling very guilty, actually, that I'm not there to, um, uh, to share the moment and also to share a, a great deal of suffering among, among friends of mine. Um, I think the mood, as you probably won't be in any way surprised to hear, is uh, depressed. Um, it is, in, often in Latin America, of course, it's useful to remember that uh, Miami doesn't remember this, or at least what we use as shorthand for Miami, that um, cheering over someone's death, even your, best, your worst enemy, is not a Latin American uh, tradition. Uh, you usually just remain quiet. Uh, if someone has died, and uh, certainly the government must be delighted by the uh, demonstrations in, in Miami because the people generally are quite disgusted uh, on the island um, with, uh, with such celebrations. Um, but certainly there is a feeling of great loss. Uh, this is, after all, uh, well over half a century, but well over 60 years of this person's dominating uh, Cuban politics, Cuban history, um, and, of course, he's perhaps, if, if President Lula was right, he's the greatest statesman and the greatest man that Latin America has produced since Bolivar. Whether or not we buy that is up to you, but certainly he's been a meteor, a long-lasting meteor, um, over the Latin American scene and the world scene uh, for a long time. And I think Cubans took stock and are taking stock of just how important he has been because, of course, we have now over a quarter of a century of the special period and whatever its sequel should be called or will be eventually called by historians, we have over a quarter of a century of real suffering. I mean, there is no other word for it, real suffering on the part of the Cuban, uh, Cuban people who nonetheless soldiered on and are still there, uh, independent, uh, battered, uh, but, uh, but uh, I think quite dignified <coughs> throughout everything. But if depression is one word one could use, I think uncertainty is even more important. 
Um, people, after all, are looking to the future. Um, there is a feeling that uh, anything goes now, complicated greatly by the November elections in the United States, which you may have noticed have presented a different kind of context for the world and for Cuba, perhaps not in particular, just Cuba as well um, as the, the rest of the world. Uh, Cubans who were already feeling very uncertain about trends in Venezuela, about trends at home in terms of the economy opening up at what rate, what position, how do people reorganize their lives in order to respond to both the challenges of that new economy and the um, depression that much of that economy leads to in, in for some people. Um, but I think it would also be fair to say fear is a word that's it's not just uncertainty. Uh, fear of the United States reaction, fear of what uh, Mr. Um, if he means, if he knows what he means, uh, what Mr. Trump means when he says that well, there may well be a continuation of the apertura uh, with uh, Cuba, but Cuba will pay a price for it now. Um, well, Cubans of course know that that price has already been paid and there isn't much in the kitty uh, politically or economically with which to pay any price to the United States for further concessions. Uh, and of course the mood is not one of concessions. Indeed, I think even the popular mood, not just the government mood, is one of no further uh, concessions. Um, of course, it's easy to use the shorthand of Cuba as it is Britain or Canada. Um, in fact, of course, there are many, many strata uh, in Cuban society and it would be a brave person who would, who would try to break them down. But I think in general it's fair to say that youth remains the most disenchanted. Uh, it was not part of what was, after all, a mass revolution, something I think, again, the United States and many other governments don't understand, that the vast majority of Cubans were involved in the revolution in the late 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, that this was not, as many of us try to suggest, one-man show, but anything but, and that this is a national revolution, for good or ill, it is a national revolution in which many people have been involved. Youth were not involved, and youth have seen no good years. So you can be quite old in Cuba without having had any exposure to good times. You only know bad times. And even with the promises and promises and promises of improvement, in fact, of course, uh, that continuing frustration, uh, particularly those who can't find a way into the new economy into the vibrant, if that's the right word, elements of the economy as it's, uh, as it's developing with foreign investment and uh, new initiatives all over the place. The middle class, I think, or the middle, sorry, the middle generations, I think, are in a difficult situation. And many of them did see good times in the 80s. Um, uh, many of them do know that the revolution has produced uh, in the past and might well again. Um, but they are, of course, less able to adjust. You just think of the linguistic problem of getting into a world dominated by English when Russian was, until fairly recently, a much more dominant language on the, on the island, and Russian is not particularly uh, useful if you're moving into the international economy, as you all know. These middle-aged um, uh, people, uh, I think, are uh, also frustrated by the length of the special <laughs> period, by the difficulties of the special period, by trying to raise kids in the special period, by having faced all manner of issues. But I would like to suggest to you 
that if la crisis de la juventud was where we were not very many years ago, la crisis de la vejez is much more striking at the moment because fixed pensions in an era of dramatic inflation, but particularly dramatic inflation on food, uh, is one that strikes this cadre, or this element, I should say cadre, this element of society, this huge element of society, because it's always worth remembering that Cubans now live to Western European uh, uh, age, uh, ages of, uh, of expiry, um, rather than uh, Latin American or third world. Uh, once. And so that you have a very large uh, older population which has to be sustained, of course, by an economy and by a youth and by a, a middle-aged groups which are not uh, as, as numerous as they have been. These fixed pensions are not answering the issues that, uh, that old people are, are facing. And of course, these, this is the group that can least well insert itself into the new economy. It's really not prepared. However, it is a traditional element of most pro-Fidel and pro-government, pro-socialism. Senate known a great deal of good years and took part, a dramatic part in many cases, many, many cases, in uh, the revolution. The problems, of course, are simply massive and it's always difficult to be optimistic uh, about, uh, about Cuba. Uh, Venezuela, perhaps not as much as sometimes we think in the North, both because of arrangements that the FARC in particular put into place, the armed forces, with both Angola and, um, uh, and, is and Algeria, not Israel, uh, and Algeria um, in recent years, exactly because the FARC in particular were extremely concerned that exactly the kind of thing that's happening now to Venezuela might well uh, happen. But I think it's often uh, forgotten that even the right, even the coalition of the right in, in Venezuela now suggests that booting out the Cubans is not really an electoral option, that it's a guaranteed way of losing yet again in any election, that you simply cannot say that you're going to dismantle what has finally been achieved in terms of education, in terms of medical, uh, public health, etc., and then expect to win uh, elections in a country like Venezuela. Uh, of course, Serlak and Alba are unfortunately, I regret to use the term, jokes uh, in terms of effective support for Cuba outside of the Venezuelan uh, arrangements, which remember are not subsidies. They are a marriage made in heaven between Venezuela and Cuba for the reasons for Venezuela I've just mentioned and for the reasons which are obvious to everyone in this room uh, for Cuba. But Serlak was trumpeted and in fact nothing has happened since the trumpeting at the great meeting in, in Havana on the university steps. And Alba, of course, is a strain rather than a support. One gets more votes from the Commonwealth Caribbean and international fora than you do from Alba. Many more votes uh, with a very little uh, in terms of commitment. So um, Cuba faces one issue after another, and we could go on and on, but I won't. I'll get to what I think probably uh, most interests people here. Uh, Fidel is dead. Now, we had always made hundreds of jokes, uh, or half jokes, about he hadn't decided yet whether he wanted to die. Uh, whether he decided is a moot point. I think it's uh, unlikely that he decided and then died, although many people will still say on the island that he must have decided or he wouldn't, couldn't possibly have died. Um, while I wasn't there for death, as I, for his death, nonetheless, I 
obviously followed it very closely and will be interested in anybody in the room who, was, who has been there. Um, this is not where we thought we would be in some senses um, until the announcement a couple of years ago by Raul that he, of course, was leaving in March of 2018. So we have not only a new picture, relatively new picture, uh, with Raul saying that he's out in March of 2018, although he will retain certain governor general uh, style uh, arrangements, I suspect, subsequently, um, and people certainly suspect um, uh, to, uh, to continue. Um, but of course, Fidel himself is dead. So that the Castro name, uh, all that that means in a, in a society like Cuba, of this guidance, these series of guidance, and also the fact that Raul was such an effective leader to the surprise of many, I don't think it should have been a surprise, but to the surprise of many, uh, he was much more charismatic than people suggested, extremely efficient, which people did uh, expect, and answered issues that the public was concerned about, transport. You recall that on his first uh, speech, he mentions, how do I ask for greater production from a country whose population I can't get to work? Not get to work in the sense of not unwillingness to work, but who can't get to work physically uh, because the transport situation is so bad. That was the kind of thing that then was followed by many, many other reforms uh, subsequently, which affected the actual lives of Cubans and made his tenure, I think, while not glorious in a fidelista uh, sense, certainly much more solid and much more related to uh, Cubans' daily, uh, daily uh, concerns. I honestly don't think that Fidel's impact on policy in recent years has been that great anyway. I know that's a debatable point and we can return to it. I think that if we look at reality post-89, you can already see that Fidel's penchant are being pushed very much by him and his meetings and the things he's doing, the thing, where places he's going, towards public health, education, and a couple of other areas, and much less towards foreign policy, defense, etc., although obviously he intervened where things uh, got really dicey uh, in other areas than, than those two. But I think Raul, since 89, was already in a steady growth of his own personal position, backed by the fact that the armed forces that he was leading, and the longest minister of defense in modern history, uh, in, in, the, in Latin America and probably the world, certainly in Cuba, um, I think that uh, we have to see that this wasn't so much of a change in terms of the day-to-day, -day. and since um, uh, Fidel's retirement in 2006 has not been what uh, they are charged with by uh, Miami. Um, still, the impact is going to be great in terms of Cuban people are, as it were in historic terms, leaderless. Diaz-Canal is an extraordinary human being in terms of his effectiveness as a governor, uh, in, in, uh, in terms of his survivability, in terms of many things that we could uh, talk about, uh, gov governor of uh, province, uh, mayor of uh, cities, even as a military officer, it's always worth remembering, decorated in Angola. Those, those are very important credentials uh, in Cuba, even although he then left the armed services and, and took him a, a civilian career entirely. Um, uh, he has not captured the imagination of the people since getting the blessing of the higher, the cupola. Um, people are not impressed more than perhaps as an administrator of efficiency. Uh, he's just not that type. On the other hand, we said that about Raul, 
and we were very wrong about Raoul's ability to, once he moved in, uh, to be a lot more charismatic. In any case, of course, appearing charismatic after Fidel Castro has been around for over half a century is a very hard thing to do. Um, Churchill might be working pretty hard at it, but certainly anybody else of us mortals uh, would have um, uh, difficulty. Um, it's also interesting, I think, another factor which I don't think has been discussed enough, and that is on the island, the, the never actually verbalized um, sentiment that because things have been improving for some time with the United States, the idea that a military man might take over from this most military of men, i.e. Raoul. Raoul was never been out of uniform. Well, sometimes prison uniform, but prison uniform or military uniform for essentially all his life. Um, Fidel, of course, was a lawyer, an acting lawyer, had a longer university career. He did other things other than the military, and it obviously wasn't the thing that most absorbed him. Whereas Raoul was a military man is a military man in every sense, and many of the changes in government, I at least suggest, are because of that, uh, that background. There's always been a thought that, well, if things really been, went bad with the United States again, a military man would not necessarily be an unacceptable option. This is interesting, I think, in the sense that, of course, people say, well, why wouldn't you carry on with a Castro? either Alejandro or either, uh, well, there are a number of options here that, that uh, carry that surname, but two, of course, one is a military officer, not a very senior military officer, so that might be a difficulty, um, and the other one, of course, is the leader of a very uh, effective uh, NGO, if that's the right word, but certainly uh, sexual education uh, 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 grouping and, and research uh, center. Um, there are people who have the Castro name, but they run up against the fact that both Fidel, long before he died, went on about the issue of the dynasty. I'm not having a dynasty here. And Raul has said the same thing. I'm not having a dynasty here. That's not why we came to power. And I think we saw that again with the no statues, no uh, streets named, no parks named, and the rest of it uh, as his last uh, wish. So who? Well, Diaz-Canel is kind of crown prince. Um, there are other options there. My own uh, feeling is that when this will, the attempt will be made to make this entirely constitutional. I think unless things really go a cropper, um, that we will have a constitutional arrangement made with normal for Cuba elections, and we will have a succession that, uh, that Raul wants. But if things do go badly, there's little doubt that the cupola and the armed forces will, as in historically, will have a final word and perhaps a central word uh, even before that final word uh, on who's being discussed uh, for the position. So I have as big a question mark as you have uh, on the succession. We have very few months. And my own view is that the United States' role in that will be absolutely crucial, whether or not we're going to head back to a situation of deep uh, confrontation, um, uh, where, well, of course, you could say that about a lot of other countries in the world, too, uh, even Canada, in part because, of course, Mr. Trudeau's rather laudatory um, description of Fidel, which has gone down very badly in the United States, not surprisingly, uh, but fortunately, as Canada always likes to hide behind 
the big boys. Uh, in fact, of course, lots of other people were very laudatory about him uh, as well, so it went less noticed than it might have. But I use that as an example simply to say that these are curious times when you're all asking yourselves, I know, what's going to happen in late January, and there's enough things already happening uh, in, uh, that, that would normally, we would not be thinking much about foreign policy or major statements or confrontations with other superpowers um, when we were in the lame duck government uh, of a formal president of, uh, of the United States, whereas, of course, we're deep into it. Uh, already with some of the most important nations in the world and, of course, nuclear-armed nations. If you're trying to avoid uh, uh, nightmares, this is perhaps not the few weeks in, uh, you're going to be most successful uh, in doing so. But whatever we're going to see, Cuba is very frightened about this context. It, is, it was prepared in many ways for a Venezuelan slowdown of support, but I don't think anyone... Uh, in the Cuban government, certainly that I spoke to, had any more idea that Trump could actually win than I would have had in June of this year, and I had none. So um, talk about getting it wrong. And I think that's really where I'd like to finish, that I think the FAR, who are absolutely central in all decision-making when things go bad, even when things go right, they tend to be, that they are of two minds, strongly reformist for the economy, and strongly super keen to get moving uh, on, on reform that will make Cuba a, a, a proper member of the international community in terms of getting the goods out of that, uh, getting profit out of that, but also the most sensitive element of the Cuban state and population where United States uh, intentions to, particularly on sovereignty, come into play. So this major motor of reform that the FAR have been, I would suggest, since the mid-80s, if not earlier, uh, in the Cuban economy and the Cuban body politic, is the one that is still very keen on that, but more nervous than anybody else about where, how far and how fast can one go while one knows that there is a very different kettle of fish brewing in, uh, in Washington. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, i uh, try to keep brief. Um, Hal, the shoe's on the other foot now. You're living in Havana and I'm here. So <laughs> you happen to be in Bangalore at the time. So you've got your, 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 your feet much more on the, on the ground in, in Cuba, except that for family reasons, I have my folks on the ground in Cuba as well. Um, and I think from what, you, from what you've been saying, um, and it, it's great, I mean, it brings up, brings, it draws on all your uh, work as a military historian and your excellent book on Raoul and, and the way in which the military shifted in Cuba in the post-89 period. Um, but I wanted to start off also with where I was when Fidel's, the news of Fidel's passing, and I'm going to call him Fidel, not Castro and not Fidel Castro, uh, the passing. Um, and I was here in London, and I don't know about others, but I... You know, we've expected him to go. I mean, for 10 years he's been sort of semi-off the scene. He's been very ill. One day he had to go. And I just thought, well, the press will reflect it. But I was totally unprepared for the media frenzy. You know, I thought, yes, he's a, a leading figure 
a third world figure is how we thought of him back in the day. But why this frenzy? And then the frenzy of the tabloid press, murderer, monster. And, and the BBC was also into this. And then we started getting calls. I kept under the radar a bit. But then the, call, the, the complaints were coming in to the BBC and others saying, this isn't the man that we recognise. So people were complaining. Why is this vision? And then they were asking other people to go in, to go and give their vision and trying to work out why he was such a polarised political figure. Because here, the emphasis was on the repression, the lack of human rights, the revolution as a negative phenomenon, and, and certainly, if not at the point of origin, but the way in which it had morphed over the years. So the repressive state was what was in uh, the mind, and then lots of coverage to the Miami uh, jubilation, if you want, which actually was only a few thousand in Miami, when most of the Miami vote is for normalization. It's a very different Miami community now. So what we were getting were, was a, a very um, interesting picture in my mind of, I just think it was a microcosm of the very divided political times we're in. I mean, Cuba's in very divided political times. We certainly are over Brexit. Um, and, uh, it's, and Latin America and, and other countries of the global, global south, if we can call it, the way in which they were coming out and the statements they were saying about Fidel. Uh, I think the uncertainties that you're describing in the Cuban context, we're facing across the world at the moment. We don't know which way this world is going. Is going. And then to pick up on some of the points, I mean, the Fidel-Raul difference. And um, in Cuba, you know... Like 10 years ago, most people would say, um, if they were you know, not very supportive of Fidel, was, oh, you know, when he goes, nobody would mention the name, right? This is Fidel, the beard, right? When he goes, then we can think about the change. Um, over the last few years, it's, well, after 2018 is when things are going to change. So 2018, when Raul stands down. So from a political perspective, and looking at the political elite... And I think I agree with some of the analysis that have been made as well, that, and you hinted on it, um, that we're moving from um, a, a period where we've already, we moved a while back from a charismatic leadership to a bureaucratic leadership, was how it was described in a, in a, in a session we had had here recently. So that they're not charismatic figures, they're not, uh, you know, whether you look at the foreign minister or you look at uh, Diaz-Canel, um, they are, it's, it's institutionalising more. So then the question is, what kind of model, what kind of policies, and how people respond to that? I absolutely agree with um, uh, Hal on his um, the differentiation within Cuba between the age groups, um, and I would add between Havana and the rest of the country. And we've seen that in, Cuba, in, in the British vote over Brexit. We saw it in, to a certain extent in the, in, in the elections in the US. London's another world. Havana in Cuba is another world. If you are down in Gramma or, or uh, Baracoa, your view of the world is very different. And that tips into um, uh, other work that uh, I've been involved in over the last, um, gosh, almost 20 years now as well, which is on the migration that um, has been uh, the Cuban migration out of Cuba post-89, because the special period that Hal was referring to in the crisis in Cuba uh, was so great that people had to try and scrabble for, for their food for the next day, but they also had to try and work out how they were going to strategize 
if strategize is, is the right word, for the future. So we've seen a migration out of people who weren't necessarily anti-Fidel or anti-the uh, revolution or anti... They were just trying to um, find a source of living and income from their, for their family members by coming out. That's not to say that were those who were left politically disaffected. They certainly were. Um, but the, the thrust of the, the work we've been doing and the interviews we've been doing in Canada and Western Europe are that this is a very varied migration and many have links back on the island. They're concerned about the way their economy and their society is going. They're concerned about the future for their own families and their own friends. And they really don't, and what comes through very strongly is they don't want a Miami. They don't want a vision of the world that's the US vision. They don't want cutthroat competitive market economy. They want something that has a social conscience, but that has a functioning economy as well. And, and so it's a very complex uh, situation that's being uh, created. And um, I think uh, one of the interesting things, uh, again, and it's something that I know less about, is, I mean, I'm a social historian, so I'm, I'm all for the people on the ground, not for the elites at the top. So I'm always, how do people respond to this? What do people think? And for a long time, people have been sort of saying, oh, it's nothing to do with Fidel, I and mean, I've just got to get on with my life, or you know, and, it, and, and the whole sort of degeneration of values, and I have to look out for myself and my own family and not the society at large. And, and all these tourists are coming in with all their money and their goodies, and, and where, where does that leave me unless I'm in that sector? Um, uh, so, you know, it, it's a real kind of uh, hodgepodge. But there are major players that might just be the ones that um, shift Cuba in directions that we in the West don't think about. And the biggie is China. I mean, it's going to be just like China and Russia are becoming the biggies in the, in the US post-election period. And what's going to happen? You know, the major investor in Cuba is now China. Um, Brazil was really important, but now the political change in Brazil has meant that the Brazilian government's throwing out the Cuban doctors that were there working, and the quid pro quo was the Mariel free trade zone and all kinds of deals. The Venezuelan one's fallen through. We've got ALBA that was a hope that was going to be a Latin America. This is how Latin America, the, 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 the state of play in Latin America today as well, and how that's going to play into uh, the Cuban situation. So I, I, I think I, I want to leave it there. I mean, um, from, in my mind, there, there are sort of many Cubas at the moment. There's, there's how the political scene is going to pan out um, and how people and their daily lives are going to um, pan out in relation to that. Um, and then there's also the fact that um, one in 11 Cuban, Cubans are abroad um, and, uh, and they're not just abroad and now lost to the country. On the contrary, they're very active. And those that are, particularly those that are in Canada and Western Europe that we're studying, their links back on the island are with values that are very different from those who go back from other places. And that's just a little microcosm because there are Cubans all over the world. There are Cubans in Africa, there are Cubans in the old eastern and central bloc um, and throughout Latin America as well, of course. So I throw it out there so that we can have a good discussion. Thank you.